Hey guys, this is Marcel from the Visual Friends for the Bicablo Radio. Before we head into today's episode, I would like to make a quick announcement about the VisCon. VisCon 2018. This will be the first visual practitioner conference in Australia and I'm super happy to organize that together with Sketch Group. So the visual friends and Sketch Group came together and said let's try to organize a conference for everyone who works visually um, in Australia or New Zealand or everywhere around pretty much to fly in into Melbourne and to spend a day together as an unconference. So the unconference means that we run this as an open space format. Meaning is that you bring your experience and you can create a session yourself as well as if you have a question you can just ask the question there and we might have a session around your question. So everyone on this conference is able to run a workshop or a session around a subject. And so far we have a couple of good names um, with a lot of experience um, coming together on, on this day. And we will probably have an amazing day. We start very early in the morning with a fresh Melbourne coffee. Then we have um, the first sessions. Uh, over lunch we have a full caterer who ha will have very very nice food for us and at the end of the day when we close the evening we actually have an after conference um, drinks at a nice bar if you think our oh, one day is awesome more than one day would be better we actually have pre-conference workshops that you can attend the day before. This is then Friday, the 12th of October. We have two sessions planned. One is about visual storytelling and the other one is about visual leadership in regards of session design and how you facilitate groups in front of a bigger audience. In case you say now, well, two days are now great, but can I have more? Yes, you can actually have more. So we put the Bicablo training that we run monthly in Melbourne exactly before those days. So that means if you have attended already the Bicablo basic class, you can join in again with the graduates discount that you probably know. Or if you haven't, then you can book yourself in into the Bicablo basics class and join in um, the Picablo basics training so you know drawing skills required you start from scratch this is your head start into visualization next day you have a special subject and on the fourth day in this way on Saturday we will have the VisCon conference so it's like four days of energy if you like and you find all this on viscon.com.au Ah, last but not least, one last thing. If you are think I can't wait until October, we have our public training in Melbourne coming up. There are a couple of seats left, so check out the um, website visualfriends.com.au. And if you're somewhere around the globe, let's say in America or so, then please go to bicablo.com. Bicablo.com. This is B-I-K-A-B-L-O dot com and you find a full schedule of all the different countries on there with all the Bicablo trainings that we run. Hey guys, in this episode you will learn a lot about Sunny Brown and her early years as an entrepreneur from struggling to make a living to be one of the top speakers and best-selling authors in the field. For example, when Sunny was quite young, she wrote to her mom a letter and told her that she either wants to become a doctor or, if that doesn't work, the President of the United States. 
This might seem like a funny kid's letter, but this letter has guided Sunny through her life. Not growing up in a privileged family, she had to believe in herself and work hard for her success. This guiding principle actually led her to her upcoming book called Deep Self-Design, which is based on the idea that you are in control of your own life. In fact, we are in control of our own lives, and our mind is often the biggest obstacle why we don't reach our full potential. We follow her journey step by step, from working for The Grove, one of the first visual thinking consultancies on the planet, before she moved to Austin, Texas, where she started her own business. We find out more about her work as an author and why riding a dragon and writing a book is a similar challenge. We talk about the serendipity that she got invited to TED 2011 and how she prepared four months for the six minutes that has inspired so far more than 1.4 million people. We compare the skill of graphic recording with sketchnoting, do a quick ask around and brainstorm together about the upcoming keynote at VizConf 2011. By the way, it's on the 13th of October in Melbourne and the tickets are selling out quickly. We recorded more than 90 minutes and therefore cut this episode into two episodes. This one will start with her childhood, through her first book Gamestorming and the second one, The Doodle Revolution. It is a great inspiration for any creator and entrepreneur. In the second episode, we hear about her experience at TED, her keynote at VizCon 2018 and her work on the upcoming book Deep Self-Design that helps you to reach your goals in life. Enjoy this episode with Sunny Brown, recorded on the 18th of September 2018. Welcome everybody to the Picablo Radio, another episode, this time with a co-host. This is Matt McGain. He's the chief doodler and founder of Sketch Group and Graphic Gear as my co-host today. And he's also my partner in crime in terms of the upcoming Visual Practitioner Conference in Melbourne called VizConf. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Marcel. How are you? Oh, very good, thanks. But I'm not sure about you. Do you have had already a coffee and what time is it in Melbourne? <laughs> It is uh, about 5 a.m. It is a little early. I deliberately went to bed uh, earlier than I expected to. Um, uh, sorry, deliberately went to bed earlier than I usually do so I could get up. And um, <laughs> my mouth is not working. My brain is probably not quite awake. <laughs> doing my best to uh, be awake. And uh, I haven't had coffee. But hopefully as we chat some more with our special guest today, um, I'll so wake up special. and come alive. Thank you, Matt. And and I, I, th I know it's a hard thing for a Melbourneian to have no coffee. Uh, 5 a.m., mm. hard again. All right. And <laughs> I'm super honored and I'm super, super happy to have our special guest, who's also our opening keynote speaker at the VizConf in yes. October. And just a couple of words before her say her name. She's a best-selling author of the book Gamestorming and the Doodle Revolution. Gamestorming sold about 155,000 times by now. Hmm. She's also named at the 100 most creative people in business and the 10 most creative people on Twitter. Her TED Talk, as her website says, has not 1.3 million viewers. It has actually, by today, 1.4,400,000. So 1.4 million views on TED, which is super amazing. It's probably two days old, the website. So this is how it goes. It tons of more things to say, but I really would like to welcome Sunny Brown. Welcome to be on the podcast. 
Thank you. I feel exciting hearing about my bio. I'm like, I want to meet that lady. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yes, we are super happy to to have you on the podcast. And um, maybe we start with a quick, quick uh, question that I always had in my head. Like, how did it happen that you got asked to to be on like on a on a TEDx exchange and you just wrote them an email saying, hey, I want to be on stage or just as oh, a quick no. head start into it? Yeah, I, that, I like that you asked that because I think I would want to know that too. And, and in fact, I was surprised myself, of course, you know, um, and it's changed the, the model for being a TED speaker has changed over time. So now you actually can apply, but at the time that wasn't a thing. Uh, it was improbable. It was profoundly improbable. And to this day, I still wonder if they made a mistake. You know what I mean? Like that I was, uh, it, it, it was deeply like a series of serendipitous random events. And I, I mean, I was a speaker and I was speaking and I was speaking about visual thinking, but you know, a lot of people do that and they're good at it and that's awesome. And I just was ended up at a conference where the woman who is the executive producer of TED was in the audience. And, and just to be clear, I was supremely hungover at the time of, of not at the, not at the big stage, but at the time when I did this talk that she was there for, and I was uh, not going to do it actually. It was, have you, have you guys heard of Ignite Talks? They're like, they're short, you know, five minutes. So I had like a five minute really random talk prepared and I wasn't going to do it because I was like, we stayed up too late the night before, but I'm glad I did because she ended up being in the audience, you know? Um, And that, you know, it's like, it changed a lot of things. So I have eternal gratitude for them, even though now now I'm like perpetually that person. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like you never get to not be that person. Not that I want want to, but it's just it changed a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So that was in 2011, and we come back to yeah. that uh, time, and we we hear more about what happened after 2011. Then in your world, but like <laughs> let's go for now even further back, and and just like I I saw I always wonder I I really would like to to meet the person and and how they grew up, where they grew up, and just like let's go. A couple of years further back, probably yeah. like 20 now, like okay. where you grew up. Um, and and um, so have you always been good in doodling and in art class at school? So no. tell us a bit about. Um, so I am working on another book and some of that content will be in this next book. Um, because I also, I have like this moment where I want to do a cautionary tale because uh my uh, historical experience is not common, or it is, but it's weird. So, um, no, I was not good at drawing. I was not good at visual thinking. Like, there is nothing about the circumstances in which I find myself that would have been predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's actually why the next book is relevant, because it draws from historical experience. But, um, but I get why people want to know those things, because you you think you can discern something meaningful from it but really when i look back it was like what the fuck you know like there's no <laughs> there's no way to like if somebody wanted to repeat it or replicate it or um it i don't even think i could do it again do you know what i mean so um no like i when i was growing up 
the idea of doing what I do now for a living was not possible. Like it was not on my radar. It was not a wish. It was not a dream. It was not even something that I considered would be available to me. So like I was blue collar and I mean the fact that I got a college education was actually improbable too, mm-hmm. you know? So that's why I'm like trying to figure out which angle to talk about because most of my friends, like for example, 90% of my friends from where I grew up are still there. Most of them did not get to go to college. Most of them are not doing super hot. So mm-hmm. again, it's like a little Celine Dion E where it's like, like you're like a farm girl and you end up in a, um, in a rarefied environment. So no, I was not prepared for trained for expected to do any of that stuff. Cool. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And, and when you, when you look at back in the childhood, did you had like, what was your favorite profession then when you wanted to become a chief doodler? <laughs> I found a letter to my mom that I wrote when I was like eight because I think I was ambitious child. I mean, I know I was ambitious child and I know I liked to be challenged. So I had a note to her and it was like, I want to be a doctor or I want to be president. Like those were my two, you know, scenarios. But, uh, but no, I like I didn't, presidents for fullback. Yeah. <laughs> like if doctor doesn't work out, maybe president. But, um, but no, I didn't have any artists in my family. I didn't have any like creatives, you know, like people sort of uh, um, now they link me with the title of being a creative. But even that title I didn't embrace until like five years ago. Because it's just, I mean, did you guys grow up where people were like, yes, if you want to be a sculptor, you should pursue that dream. Like, does anybody get to do that? I don't know. Not at all, no. Like, I right? I definitely had um, creative people in my family. My aunt is quite a well-awarded uh, um, and celebrated artist here in Australia. She exhibits and oh. she's quite well-known. And so I guess the, the, the visual arts are strong in my family. My mum was, was good at drawing as well. But oh, um, wow. I didn't pursue it until later in life. I went a software developer and kind of moved back to it later on. But anyway, it, this is about... Oh, well, that's interesting, though. But did you, um, so when you were young, did you have a, I mean, I know I'm not interviewing you guys, but still, it's Please nice to have, yes. yeah, it's nice. did you have a, um, was your aunt sort of an inspiration to you, yeah. or did you notice what she did as, you know, as interesting? Matt, was your aunt an inspiration? Um, I have to be careful, because I'm sure. <laughs> I have to be careful in case she, uh, she listens to this, but I remember oh, her sure. being, I remember her being a bit of um, a, a, a tortured soul. Like she, she's very successful and she's extremely talented. And, and I, I always could see the talent there and her command of the canvas. But um, wow. she struggled with it, you know, because she was an artist. So she, I think, the subject matter for a period in her, her time was quite dark. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, she struggled with the concept of, of playing that role and, and being the one with the responsibility of bringing forth this, you know, visual content that was really, a, you know, the reflection of what was going on in her life and, mm-hmm. and the, the big, big thoughts that were occupying her, her yeah. head. I think it yeah. was very different from, from what you and I do when we work with clients and help them right. you know, solve problems. It's, it's like a world. Yeah. And for me, my parents, didn't restrict me and you have to become a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that, that like the normal uh, expectations. Um, 
they were middle class um, people in the, in the same way. And they, um, uh, my, my father is an electrician and my mom like learned to be an accountant. So like very standard jobs. Um, mm. And I think that's in some ways easier. Like I, I didn't have to stand up to something. Like imagine if you are like yeah. a son or a daughter of Bill Gates and you have to do the same. It'd be horrible. Yeah, nice yeah. try. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, so in, in, in this way, um, yeah, they never made me any, <laughs> anything to, you have to become this now. So I was that's free nice. what I wanted. Yeah, you had like a blank slate. Yes. Yeah. That's so funny because I used to always identify with um, characters in novels that were or- orphans because the, um, the possibilities were not predetermined, right? Like they didn't have parental figures to whom they would have mapped. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I mean, obviously there's some serious uh, detriments to that, but there's some benefits. One of them being that you get to imagine your way into your life. And um, I always related to them because I was like, no, because similarly, my mom wasn't dict- uh, dictating what I liked or what I should like or uh, how I should approach anything. It was actually very, very helpful because then I didn't have a, um, I mean, my only rule, the only rules I applied were from myself to myself, you know, like, and that's what was so cool that I ended up in a field that has some really deep creative applications because when the rule I applied to my own self was you, it has to be practical. It has to be pragmatic. It has to be applied. So I can't just be a conceptual, I mean, like I actually had these notions when I went in to choose majors in college and when, and everything I did was like, will somebody pay me to do this? Is this useful? And, um, and in retrospect, that was really helpful because I didn't, I mean, I didn't get to become a painter, which would have been really an intriguing path, but I uh, got to do a hybrid of something that is creative, but also applied, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that I, I probably applied a similar filter, but went too hard. And so when I pursued a career in software development, I, I looked back occasionally and went, oh, I wish I'd just done some fun stuff at uni because, you know, being an adult at times can be really hard. And I, yes. I think I regretted not allowing myself the chance to pursue some things just for, for whimsy. Mm-hmm. But are you doing that now? Um, I, I feel like I, I get to have the best of both worlds in the role I'm doing now. So I don't, I, don't, I don't live a life of regret by any stretch, but I do remember working, you know, for PricewaterhouseCoopers in a software development. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Was, you know, yeah. The, the demands were, were great and it was not a great environment um, mm-hmm. and not very creative. So... Right. I'm glad I feel blessed every day for the stuff that I do these days. But yeah, I remember at university thinking, oh, what if I'd gone and sat in on some arts and humanities classes just for the fun of it, you know? <laughs> exactly. Guys, like, what would it be like? Yeah. I just, just wondering, like, in, in terms of, of, the, um, of your study, like, when you, what majors did you pick? And, and, and what, like, how that went from there in, into the world of visualization? Like, I haven't read the full bio, I have to say. Oh, um, me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. So undergrad, I studied journalism and mm-hmm. linguistics. So it, interestingly, it was definitely a language focus, not a visual language focus, but a language focus. So I already had an inclination toward understanding sort of codified communication systems, you know, 
Um, and then, but I, uh, I, and then I went to graduate school and I studied public policy because I thought that um, it would be valuable. Like, again, that was sort of practical. I, I considered law school, took the LSAT, um, worked at a law school for a year to figure out if I was going to be a lawyer. And in retrospect, I'm like, why would I think? <laughs> like, there's no part of me that is lawyerly, you know? Um, so thankfully I did not, somebody, one of my professors said, maybe you should consider public policy. Cause at the time I was really like an activist, you know, I was very, very socially conscious. And, and, um, so, uh, that was the, I remember at that time in graduate school, I, that was the first time I was like, wow, this is some really complex system thinking required to understand policy and the impact on human beings and on the planet and so forth. And nobody was using visual language at all. And I remember being in graduate school and being like, this is, that's a problem, you know, cause you're trying to change people's opinions. You're trying to change behavior. You're trying to change systems and they're giving people 50 page white papers that are not interesting, not inspiring, not integrated, you know? So that was the first time it occurred to me that there was something missing in terms of the educational path. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and that also was true for me in journalism, because journalism, you have like infographics and you have some kinds of uh, story articulations and visual language. But, but still, I, d I got out of, completely out of school and had no exposure to visual thinking at all. You know? So it was self-taught. It was completely pursued and self-taught. And how did you notice then that you can actually, like from that part of visual thinking, you can make maybe money and run on yourself, like run oh, yeah. your business? Or how did right. you get in this direction? So, we'll so well, that was a random serendipity too. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I graduated and moved to San Francisco, which is, I live in Oakland now. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was like serving muffins at a, um, at Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is like a huge insurance company. And I could, cause I couldn't get a job. I didn't know people in the Bay area. And, um, I was like, I remember I did the dumbest things. Like I did like, Like I passed out flyers in a subway and I like, I just could not find a job. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then eventually somebody was like, Oh, my niece's, you know, cousins, professors, husbands, mom's wife or whatever is looking for an executive assistant to at this company called the Grove, mm -hmm. which is now, you know, is no people. I mean, the Grove is amazing. It's been around for almost 40 years now. Mm -hmm. And that is how I ended up in a visual thinking environment. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, well, actually there was some, t at first I was like, this is silly, you know, because like, <laughs> you remember I was a practical, pragmatic person. Lawyer. <laughs> right. Almost. Like I was like, and yeah. Paul, exactly. So I, so I was very skeptical. I remember at the time. And then eventually I figured out pretty quickly that it was really powerful and it did have applications applications that I thought needed to be directed toward business more uh, deeply. Mm -hmm. So, cause you know, California, you know, I don't know if you guys know California, but at the time it was like super hippie. And so I was like, Oh my God, hippies, you know, like <laughs> that was literally, that was literally how I was thinking. So, so when I started my business, you know, I was at the Grove for two years and then I moved to Austin and I started my company And my, that was my whole angle was like practical, applied, you know, problem solving. Like it was not artistic. It was not creative. It was not based on attractive ability. Like it was practical. And I think that was a, a huge advantage actually mm -hmm. at the time. 
Very cool. Cool. Mm -hmm. So when you moved to Austin, like you, you started your, your own uh, practice uh, around graphic recording or visual thinking or what was the, what was the frame or the, the, the idea you had in your mind? My, that's a great question. So my actual first idea was to get a job. So yep. I, I moved from San Francisco to Austin and my, first, and my job there was, because remember I had a policy to, uh, master's. And so my first job in Austin was at the department, Texas Department of Insurance, which is, you can imagine, it's like, it's a bureaucratic environment. It's like you have cubicles, you have fluorescent lights, you have paper pushers and miserable misery. You have misery. So I was, <laughs> and so I was there for a one week and I was like, I'm going to die here. I can't stay here. And that was when I, I went at the time I lived in a condo. It was my friend's condo. And I just like, I went and circulated like what Steve Jobs would call this is like, um, what, or, or what I would call it too is kinesthetic doodling where you're like, you're physiologically or circulating information so that you can come up with something that is otherwise unaccessible. So I, I, I circumambulated my, that swimming pool like 400 times. And then I was like, I quit and I'm going to start a business. And I had no idea what, I, no idea what I was doing. No idea. I just didn't care. Actually. I was like, it's either death or a business, you know, like that was my <laughs> thinking. because it was such a miserable place to be that, I mean, I, I'm not insulting the people that work there, right? Like that's their jam, more power to them. But for me, it was, I would have suffocated and died. So the choice at that time was actually easy because I, I thought, well, I have nothing to lose, you know, and that's why a lot of times I talk, I coach entrepreneurs now and I coach um, pres presenters and I coach a lot of people on different things and, you know, different stages of your life make certain things possible, make certain levels of risk more or less likely and so forth. So for me, it was a low risk uh, chapter of my life. Mm. And um, so it was. I don't, I mean, I didn't know what I was in for. Like, <laughs> it, it, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, that was really tough to be an entrepreneur. But to me, it was like, at the time, it was like, I could either work there and be really deeply unhappy, or I could just take a risk. And so I did. And my first project was an infographic for Siemens, that big uh, multinational company. And, 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 and I, in the first year of my company, I made 6,000 US dollars. And somehow I lived on that I do not know how <laughs> like in, in retrospect I'm like how did I pay my rent but I did you know but I, I honestly didn't care like I thought to myself if I really and I still believe this if you do take risks calculated risks not just maniacal risks mm -hmm. if you take calculated risks uh, there's something in the field that understands that you're doing that and it kind of rises to meet you. And I know that sounds, you know, a little um, new agey, but I think that, that, that uh, it was calculated risk and I, and it paid off, you know, but it was the first, so, so to your question, yes, there was a graphic recording, but there was also infographics. I was just like taking content and visualizing it for people um, having no real idea what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> And I think you, you're basically um, running in open doors because Matt and I think operate in a similar way. It's like taking risks is, I think I feel actually more alive. Like, oh, um, yeah. And it, and it actually is, is a nice. So I have been an agile coach like, um, where it's about change and uncertainty. And I think I'm addicted to both of that. 
Shame. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So, so do you get bored if you're not being challenged or? Yes. Uh huh. So you're perfect. You're perfect for what you're doing then. Yeah. Well, <laughs> or <laughs> I'm out of the learning zone into the panic zone, right? That's possible. Yes. Yeah. That's a natural, natural. I mean, that never, does that ever leave? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> I think what happens is we have to learn how to meet uncertainty differently. I don't think it ever goes away. Yes. If, Matt, if you're, if you're on your, if you're doing your own thing. Yeah. Right. Matt, how do you manage uncertainty and risk? Yeah. So, um, I don't know if you guys have read or watched much of Tony Robbins. I'm not like mm -hmm. a big Tony Robbins fan or anything, but, um, him. someone, yeah, someone shared with me recently, his um, principles of like the human values for the, the things that, um, all humans are striving for in various degrees and you know i think the, the growth and love and connection and certainty and uncertainty and contribution and significance i think that's the six and so that idea of um needing uncertainty in our life in order to remain motivated mm -hmm. um, certainly resonates very strong very strongly mm -hmm. with me and explains a lot when i reflect on some of the decisions i've made over the years you know when i started my business i was um, supporting my wife at the time and she wasn't working and in retrospect that's not a great um, time <laughs> in your, not, not a great stage in your life to, to be taking that financial risk and maybe that explains why the marriage didn't work out I don't know but um, <laughs> I, I, like, quite seriously different risk profiles is probably like one of the factors yeah. but um, much like you Sandy like it's just something I, I felt like I had no choice I needed yeah. to do and I pursued it and I felt like I, I had the certainty that this was the right thing to do and, and it, it paid off. Um, yeah, but I think at, at other stages in my life, I would have been, um, this is not the right time for me right now. Or mm -hmm. um, Actually, I think, I think I'm a late bloomer with the entrepreneurship stuff. I think that the ambition to work for myself came to me later in life. Um, mm -hmm. I was working for a company called SitePoint. They were very, um, like a, a Melbourne-based .com and the entrepreneurial environment in that office was they definitely planted some seeds for me. Interesting. And, um, yeah, and, and Tim Ferriss um, has played a role. He has a lot to answer for mm -hmm. as well. There's um, mm -hmm. something in his four-hour workweek book that says, um, who do you know that has done something similar that, that you know that you could do better than that person or something like that? It's like, if, yeah. <laughs> if they, they can do it, I can do it. And that, that, <laughs> Strongly with me, yeah. So a lot, a lot of things going on that that, that brought me to where I am. But um, yeah. yeah, that's nice. That's a good reflection. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh yeah. So it's not that you're a late bloomer. It's just that the certain uh, things had to occur in order for that to become available, right? Because somebody could yeah. start it in their 60s. It's like maybe they needed to have nine different environments in which they gathered enough information to suddenly become creative with it. But um, yeah, because who, who started? I mean, Marcel, are, you're, you run your own business too. Yes, and I actually have to say a thank you to, to Matt because he basically, we had in my garden a conversation um, and uh, we were, I was working full-time actually at Myop where we will be in a couple of weeks. As oh, an agile cool. coach, and and on the side, I started my business, and and Matt and I we had a we had a barbecue, which is like um, 
It's like the Holy Grail in Australia. We have a barbie. <laughs> Same in Texas. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like drinking beer there and it's like, you will not regret it, mate. I'm sure you will have success. And, and so in, 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 I have been like uh, self-employed uh, like many times in my life. Not always successful. Uh-huh. But that's good experience <laughs> yeah. too. And, and um, like at the same, similar um, to Matt, I, I um, was supporting the family. So I uh, was raising, a ch- like still raising a child. It's 12 now. Um, mm-hmm. So my wife had already a child and Elena was um, 10 or 9 at the time. So we had a mm-hmm. house, a big house in Melbourne, a bit outside in a suburban life basically. And uh, I was working full time and I could not imagine to pay the bills while running my business. So yeah. then I started on the side and um, from, from that, um, we started traveling. We started traveling in a, in a camper van around Australia and nice. I canceled the house and it was that half of the money was needed per month. So the cost of living was dropped to 50%. My business was at the point where 50% was easy to realize. And so I, uh, I jumped and yeah. <laughs> and they were supportive of it or were they freaked uh, out? Totally supportive. That was no, Oh, problem. that's nice. Yeah. And, and they could see that I just was not in a happy place. So yeah. I, I remember that's myself. the thing. See, so yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. I'm much, much, I was just going to say that I am, um, I, I nearly was. I, I nearly accelerated that for you because I nearly hired you for a, a job at a, at a bank. There was a yes, true. There was a true. there was a large um, graphic facilitation <laughs> job that came up, and it involved um, an executive team from one of the major banks here in Australia um, doing a road trip around Australia, and um, like holding sessions with people. And I think there must have been like maybe thirty session so it was like 30 days over a period of about five or six months and i could do maybe half the days but i couldn't do all of them so i i had marcel in the, the background to line him up and and like fill the gaps and so it, it was a significant piece mm-hmm. of work and, um and as it turns out the bank actually didn't know what they wanted they just wanted someone to draw caricatures of the people in the room they didn't actually want the content captured so it was it was not a good fit oh, but they didn't tell us that until after they actually accepted the proposal, told us that we were, we'd won the work. I basically was telling myself, it's, it's good. We've won the job. You can quit. And then um, they wanted to do a trial and um, then they changed their mind about what they wanted. So um, luckily, Marcel didn't quit his job at that exact point because the opportunity fell through. But uh-huh. um, that was around the same time. That was kind of before you then built up your own client base and you were right. Yeah. And, and it was great. It was a great experience, by the way. Um, I can quickly share that because that means maybe you ha- have uh, realized that as well. So you do some, you perform there and I was trying to be like the best system thinker that I can uh, doing mm-hmm. speech bubbles, arrows and mapping out the content. And then they tell me, mm-hmm. now we want to have a landscape, maybe nicer figures. And then it's like 3D, God. can you do 3D? It's like, uh, oh yeah, sorry. I had the wrong person. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and he was like basically talking about some cartoons that I, I'm not an illustrator. I'm a, I'm a singer and I'm, I'm a doodler and, and those things, but I, ah, okay, cool. Nice. So we both wasted our time. <laughs> so it was a great experience. Um, so, in, in retrospect. So then after that, yeah. Yeah. After that, um, I, I, um, um, I, I probably, I, I did a bit of a retreat for myself because I, I was wondering what do I like most? 
and it was never graphic recording. It was mm -hmm. for me to teach people to pass on what I learned. So my the visual friends is is by ninety nine percent no ninety percent let's say that ninety percent a training organization. The whole mm -hmm. everyone who's like with me we train people in in what we do. Um, graphic recordings, yeah, they we get asked for it, but mm -hmm. often I pass them on to Matt because he has a strong team for with illustrators for that. I like to pass on what I learned, and that's what the business is about. Uh huh. Matt, do you think that, because um, how long have you been in business for yourself? I started Sketch Group in 2011. Oh, and cool. We, okay. Yeah, and, and we do primarily, so the um, hand-drawn videos, the whiteboard animation explainer videos. Yeah, the amazing one you did. We did. That was, um, thank you. That was. Uh, oh, thank so, you. So the story with that is that my, the other business that I, the first business that I started for myself was called UX Mastery and uh -huh. I started that with a, a good friend of mine and it was going to be in, well, so, so my business partner, Luke, he's still running with the business and still making a go of it. But the theory behind that business was, was that everyone wants to get into UX. I've been working as a user experience designer, had a lot to share. So we, the vision for this business was an online business teaching people how to move into user experience and how to be better user experience designers. So a lot of online content. So I was writing reviews of, online courses, I was writing reviews of books, and um, I was basically just pumping out this content because I'd worked running blogs for SitePoint, my, my previous employer. Oh, uh -huh. And so, um, yeah, any, any book that I could get my hand on, I'd buy it, I'd read it, I'd devour it, I'd review it. And um, oh. on the side, in order to launch that website, I made one of these hand-drawn videos that I'd seen, um, oh. you know, similar things popping up of TED content. And uh, so I had a, a home rig to do budget versions of, because I have a professional videographer for the client videos that we make, but for the stuff for the blog, I was just um, basically it's an iPhone on, on a stand above my desk. And so, yeah, so that was me visualizing the doodle revolution um, just because I wanted some more blog content and partly because I loved your TED talk and I thought this is a good way to, to get the attention of someone, you know. Um, yeah. Create, create a video. Well, it's got a ton content. of views. Like, it, like I, I remember it was one of the first videos that came out about the book. And I remember I was like, oh my God. Because, you know, it's like you create something. You don't know if anyone is ever going to see it or care or whatever. So I remember yeah. I, 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 like, I called my husband. I was like, oh my God. I was like, somebody not only read it, but they made a thing. Like, it was like, for me, it was such a huge gift. Because you just, uh, you know, it's great. like to be acknowledged and to have something that wonderfully done and the early stages and then um a ton of people have seen it too so it's like it was just a really nice uh it, it was like a nice resonance of something when you because i worked my ass off to make that thing and you know it's like one uh, again it's that uncertainty piece where you do you work your heart out and it's like may not matter and you have yep. to live live with that possibility so it's just a very nice appreciation and recognition and I'll, I'll never forget that moment when i saw it for the first time I was like, oh, and it swings both ways, right? Because then, um, then the Good Morning Canada show used it as the intro for the segment yeah. we had you as a guest, and I was like, oh, there's my video. <laughs> Good Morning Canada. Did they, ask you? they didn't ask you, huh? No, but I, if you um, if you pause the video at the right moment, the text that has the credit to UX Mastery is <laughs> almost visible. Look, you're like, look, so it's all good. There. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. Guys, right? I want to be a bit the historical person here. It's like, like going on a timeline. So as I'm a system 
think we go by timeline now. <laughs> you heard our story how we started, but like I'm just interesting. Like from your from your first year with with did you say six thousand US dollar in yeah. profit or in revenue profit? Yeah, same. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, yeah. It was. I mean, like minus expenses is probably yeah. like forty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so that was. Do you know, remember the year or like mm. at what time? Yeah, after? I actually just saw my, because I'm starting another business. So I yep. just saw my DBA and it was July of 2011. All right. So what no. happened? No, that can't be right because it's been, I've been in business 11 years. That would be years. the TED talk. The same year. Oh yeah, right. So 18, oh sorry, July of 2007. Yes. Yeah, 2007. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 2007, I was backpacking through Australia. So what happened after that for you there? After I started it? Yeah, yeah it was like, like oh. when after the first year and until oh, I'd the call, I'd call it the hustle years. So mm -hmm. like um, when you were saying you had like a side thing, I was like side hustle. Um, that I started, everyone I had ever met who would listen to me, who had uh, 20 minutes, I was just like, this is what I can do. Here's why it's amazing. I mean, I was a total salesperson, you know, and the thing is that a lot of people are uncomfortable with that aspect of, of, uh, building your own business, but reasonably, because it, you know, requires some, uh, extroversion and it requires some, uh, bravado and it requires, uh, um, kind of like a deep passion and a lot of energy. And so the first year, I think I had, you know, 200 meetings with these poor and four fortunate people that I'd run across and be like, do you have 10 minutes? Cause you know, like, cause I was, I mean, you know, it's, it's that fire underneath. Cause I knew I didn't have a job for one thing. So it wasn't like, there wasn't a safety net. So that's very motivating, you know? And that's why a lot of times when I'm trying to sniff out, if I think someone has the qualities or the traits of an entrepreneur, I want to find out how motivated are they? Cause they're going to have to do some serious hustling. Um, depending on a lot of different variables. So yeah, the first year was literally me reaching out to anyone and doing free work. I did a ton of free work just for the purposes of showcasing what it could do. Um, and then um, eventually, and some of it is such a blur, right? Because you know, when you first start something, you're totally consumed by it. Like that's the entirety of your life. And uh, um, but I do remember doing a ton of free work, talking to a lot of people and I had the great fortune of that work being visibly demonstrated. It's like proof of concept is right there. So, um, and people are very intrigued by it and stuff. So, so, you know, I always tell people, and I actually am curious about your conference attendees, you know, like, do you think a lot of them are people who are interested in starting their own businesses or are, I guess you don't know yet because it's your first year, right? So. I think Matt can answer as well in a second, but I think from the audience that I reach or the, my students, mm -hmm. this, what you just say is, is really, really interesting because they find a, they found, basically found a new skill. They find a new way to engage with people. Maybe they are in an, an agile coaching or in, in, in a product management area or a facilitator. And, um, with, with the skill we teach, um, like, uh, Well, I'm, I'm staying for the Picablo training technique mm -hmm. and the Picablo skill said um, it is, um, it's like we, we teach a new language and they, they just want to use it. And, and many of, like a lot of my friends actually started working on the site and I pass on graphic recording gigs to them and, mm -hmm. and, and those things. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think it's relevant. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of, I think also freelancer come to the conference who already 
have their practice and, and work in the field. So it's really mm-hmm. interesting to hear like, yes, even Sunny Brown started in the same way. She didn't oh, print yeah. a book and put it in a shop, right? So it's a very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, I would concur. I think that, um, so when people's minds are opened to the power of being able to communicate more effectively with visuals, I think a seed is planted and they're not going to say overnight, I could start a business with this. I think that that, that seed is planted and it takes a while for that to kind of take root mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. It, it doesn't happen for everyone, but there definitely will be some people in that, in that camp who they do a, a, you know, they might graphically record a meeting or they might do something for a, a the local girl guides chapter outside of work and, and realize that this skill is universal and it, it's a real, it's a powerful thing that they now have been taught how to do. Mm-hmm. But I think it takes a while for the, the actual decision, like I'm going to work for myself doing this, that, mm-hmm. that can take a long time for some people. Yeah. Well, I'm just asking because I'm interested in knowing what would be relevant and interesting for them, you know? So that's, that was why, because there's a lot of different things people want to know. And I, um, I am sort of sensitive to all of them because all you have all these different stages, right. And all these different applications and not everybody needs to be an entrepreneur or wants Mm. to do that. So it's kind of like, how uh, I'd love to know the rest of the format of the conference at some point too. So I can be like, Oh, they're going to get training in this, 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 and this. So we don't need to talk about that in my time with them and blah, blah, blah. But that's a planning call we could have at some other point. (laughs) (laughs) But there's just so many, it's so deep, you know, it's such a deep practice. But uh, uh, while we are on the, on the topic of the conference, I think it's, it's good to say a couple of words about what, how this conference will unfold. Yeah. Um, so it is an unconference. It will be hosted as an open space. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a prepared um, schedule. Um, okay. um, apart from the opening keynote with you and um, Jessamy G from Melbourne as the closing uh-huh. keynote. Uh-huh. So we have two talks in the beginning and the end. And in between, we have sessions in parallel where you can run your own workshop and uh-huh. uh, share some experience. Um, so, for example, we probably have uh, a session where we share the outcome of the pre-conference workshop in, in a half an hour session or something that ran a day before. That's mm-hmm. one of my trainers doing, and maybe I do one as well. So, mm-hmm. But it basically, if you have a subject or a question, you bring it to the audience, write it on a piece of Post-it card, and, and put it up on the front board, which is called... You probably know about it for, for the listeners. It's called a marketplace. So it's visible like a big task board. Mm-hmm. And then they prioritize and, and decide where they would like to go. And then mm-hmm. have nice coffee all day. And we have mm-hmm. uh, food and catering uh, from a very, very great company who helps with people with disabilities. So I produce oh, nice. food. And then in the afternoon, we um, have the closing keynote. And then we go for uh, drinks at the bar. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty much the day. Yes, and it's worth mentioning that um, that on unconference format for people who haven't experienced it before. That like Marcel and I have seen the attendee list, and we know the quality of the people that are going to be in the room, and some of the people from Melbourne that have signed up that run successful visualization um, practices. Like there's there's some talent in the room. I'm really excited about learning from. Um, some of the people that are on that list and seeing what sessions they put their hand up to host. So um, don't feel like 
there's going to be this big silence and people are going to be looking at each other going, well, I don't want to do something. Are you going to do something? I'm not going to do something. There's going to be be, um, so many different sessions that you're going to have to choose between because, and they're all going to be quality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that... That will happen. And, and Matt always says, like, uh, we have to share this uh, and, and talk about who's coming. And uh, I'm completely forget about that because he's, I see all the bookings are coming. It's like, oh, he's coming too. Oh, my God, that's cool. But that's we forgot to share this. We're already registering. That's nice. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah. Oh, just one question. When, when they register, do you ask them why they are coming or do you find out any information about them? Um, their T-shirt size. <laughs> Matt, can okay. you write on our list for next year? Ask why they're coming. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just yes. it would it's be really point. cool to know. Yeah. yeah, like what their expectations might be, or um, or what they're hoping to like. If they walk away, what do they want to walk away with? It would just be interesting to know. But even you can just email maybe because see, normally yeah. when I design keynotes, I interview the members of the audience and then I design backward from the knowledge that I gather from them. Yeah. So in this case, I, I don't need to do it. It's the first year. Inaugural things are always like surprises. That's just the nature of it. But, uh, but I am curious about what they need. But I think a lot of it uh, I can sort of deduce, you know, and that's cool too. But yeah, if we could, if we could ask some of them um, before, that would be, be yeah, helpful. It's possible. Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. Um, just... On my timeline, when we... <laughs> <laughs> I like your journey map, taking us on a journey. I'm, I'm just wondering, so, so in, in some ways, I actually don't know what happened first, like the TED Talk or the book, The Doodle Revolution? Oh, so Game Storming was first, then oh, TED. Storm. Yeah, Game yeah. Storming first, then TED, then Doodle Rev. So, um, yeah. So I, I have a question for you, which I ask you later. What's on your bucket okay. list you haven't done? On my bucket yeah. list is... I really would like to write a book one day, maybe when uh-huh. I'm 60 and have some experience. Yeah. You But have an terrible writer. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> so um, um, Matt takes care of all the blog posts on the website because I'm just, nah, I can't, I don't want. Yeah. So, so it's just like the, how do you write, produce this amazing content? And like, in, and then in, in, in this way, it's actually co created between three authors, right? So you have this game storming book. Um, it's like, Do you just hide somewhere in a cave like the, like the <laughs> Tibetan monks and just come out three years and, and light it and then you just um, print the book? Great Done. Question. Yeah, it's and, a really and, good and, question. And then before you answer it, I know that um, I've met Dave Gray a few times. That He's come out to Melbourne for the UX Australia conference and we've had uh-huh. lunch and we've had some good chats. And oh, cool. He's, just, he's a strong personality. So I can I imagine... Know. But, you know, having, I, I haven't met James, but I can imagine that, you know, the, the oh, yeah. melding of creative minds is not necessarily an easy process. No, I right? know. Dave and I are, we're like the odd couple because he's like six, five and he's, you know, a, has deep expertise and he clearly is like, uh, and he used to be the CEO of a good sized company. And so, yeah, he definitely has a dominant uh, capacity for dominance. And so, and then there's me and I'm five, five and I'm like kind of goofy And, you know, I, I was actually a huge fan of Dave before we wrote that book together. So, you know, there was like a young grasshopper sort of, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but no, but I, I think uh, this is a sort of footnote, but I think when you are a woman and you're working in a field and you have men that are uh, professionals and experts and they're really tall, you know, um, you, ha- you really have to hold your own. 
you know, like it's just, you, you have to. And so with, especially with Dave, because Dave is like a presence. So the way we did that, the way we did that book was like divide and conquer. Like we, Dave and I did not have to butt heads around stuff because it was like, here's your job. Here's my job. Here's James's job. So cool. in, ter in terms of like book production, books are fascinating creatures because they are, they take you on rides and you know, nowadays the publishing landscape is very diverse and wild and there's a ton of ways to do it. And, uh, so like Marcel, if you want to talk about that at some point, I'm happy to go with you on that um, inquiry because I have a lot of thoughts about it. But, uh, but yeah, game storming was easily done because we had segregated roles and we maintained the integrity of those roles. And so it was like not a problem. Actually, you know? I don't know what was your role? Like what, when you split it up, what was the split? I curated, oh, so Dave yeah. did the theoretical piece, right? Yeah. So like the opening chapters, which, um, you know, if any of it sounded ridiculous to me, I would have said, you know, we were like, it wasn't like I had no idea, but he was assigned the theoretical piece and I was assigned the practical application piece. So I chose the games and I drew all the pictures. Mm -hmm. And then James was like, it, it's interesting. I don't actually still know why James was like, Like, because James is a, is a super expert in visual thinking and he was a, a consultant at Explain for a long time. So James, I think, was the quality assurance on the selection and the um, drawing of the games. But he, um, you know, was a minor role. Um, but it, it, but it, had, it had all the characters that we needed to get it done. And it was, it was easy to do, actually. It was easy to do. And Doodle Revolution, by contrast, completely kicked my ass every which way from Sunday. And I did it all entirely by myself. Um, and it was maniac. It was insane. Yeah. So on that, you just called it a creature writing a book. So please describe this creature of the Doodle Revolution. How does it look it like? Was a, it was a dragon. A dragon? Okay. <laughs> yes. Spiky it it was like a, yeah, it was like a long dragon that had a lot of fire, a lot of smoke. And like when you ride it, it would just like, you had to hold on tight, you know, because it could throw you off. And uh, that is how I, that is the metaphor I used to use to describe it, was riding the dragon. Because... It was not, and this is, it, this is actually relevant too for people who want to write books. Like sometimes they come through you. So, because by the time I started writing Doodle Revolution, that content, I, I had been so much deeply immersed in this world of visual thinking and facilitation that, that the messages from those experiences sort of spelled themselves out to me. So it was, I didn't have to like pull teeth to get that content. It was so ripe. It was just there. And, um, and, but that's different. So the book I'm working on now, whole different ballgame, you know? So, so if, we, if we have a conversation eventually about what you want to create, then we just have to t understand the nature of what energetically is coming forth and how to harness it in a way that makes sense for you and your intentions and the content itself. Like, what does it want to be? Because I, I actually think the Doodle Revolution wanted to start itself And I was like a messenger and that was the extent of my responsibility, you know, it sounds so Sunny, Yeah. And Sunny, can you, um, can you share the feeling you had when you received your first hard copy and you like opened it up and, and turned the cover and because this is a book that is completely full of your personality, like the writing, I know. it's very, it's very clear when you read the <laughs> game story that it was a collaborative effort. This, this, you know, you have, 
little um, humorous footnotes and you have little little random in-jokes and asides and, and you know, um, references that are very sunny. So do how, how was that? Picture, do you want to see a picture of me when I first got the doodle rub in my hand? Please. Okay, yes, hold on. And, oh, and, it's right here. and for all the listeners, we put him in the show note and you will see it on the website okay. if you go. Hey guys, thank you very much to listening to the first part of this interview. So the second part is also on iTunes. You just need to hop over on iTunes. If you want to have a short break, uh, why not give us a quick rating? Leave us a comment what you think about this part of the episode, what we could do differently, and maybe give us a star rating on iTunes, how many stars we deserve. Thank you very much for listening again and look forward to read all your comments.